I want to go to the Word of God this morning, and I just want to share some things. This is really, really on my heart, what I want to share. I've been preaching about the Spirit of God. We've talked about Summer of the Spirit, and um, it's kind of a cute little alliteration there. Um, and we're going to carry messages about the Spirit of God into the fall. Um, but uh, today, I want to kind of, I want to not so much take a break, but I want to take a little detour on that, because I want to talk about what we're going to be doing in September. In September, we're calling uh, September Days of Delight, 30 Days of Delight. Um, for, uh, even before I came as a pastor, definitely last year, we use September as an emphasis time. As a matter of fact, we have two times of, of special focus on prayer in the year. One is at the beginning of the year, the calendar year in January, our time of prayer and fasting. But another time is September, uh, kind of a 30 days of change thing because everybody's been around in the summer and you know, they're all over the place and it's kind of a time to refocus. And so what we're uh, shooting for, like we did last year, right after we came as pastors, we're doing again this year, the goal for September is 30 days of unbroken prayer. 30 days where we spend time with God every single day. This isn't a legalistic thing. This isn't a bondage thing, but it's discipline unto liberty is what it's about. It's the liberating power of walking in a discipline before the Lord, of setting a spiritual goal for ourselves, and we're seeking to meet that. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And specifically, I want to talk about delight. So I want, to turn, I want you to turn to your Bibles, if you would, if we can bring it up on the screen. Psalm 37, and I'm going to read from the first four verses. Psalm 37. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be in this place, Lord, to sing your praises and uh, to pray and know that you've made your house a house of prayer for all nations. God, to receive the touch and the smile, the handshake and the embrace of a brother or a sister in Christ. We thank you for these things. But God, we thank you especially for the freedom to proclaim your word. And we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit Lord, the great teacher and paraclete and comforter who comes alongside of us and uh, guides us into all truth. Teach us today, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and give me a tongue to speak. God, that your purposes would be accomplished in the hearts of everyone who hears. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, praise God. Now, I love this psalm. Um, there's, some, there's some really neat things about this psalm. This psalm is actually what we call an acrostic psalm. A lot of this is obviously lost because it's lost in translation, but there are how many letters in the alphabet? Wrong, 22. Oh, sorry, you're talking about in English. Okay, in Hebrew, there are 22 letters in the alphabet, right? And each stanza of Psalm 37 begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Incidentally, so does Lamentations chapter 3, which is where that passage about 
the mercies being new every morning come from. So this is a common thing in Hebrew poetry to use this acrostic, sort of the ABCs of whatever truth is being talked about. And so this, this uh, passage right here, we got into the A and the B, right? That's the verses, uh, verses 1 through 4, or the, the, uh, the A and the B, or in Hebrew, that's the Aleph and the Bet. Those are the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And this, this psalm is talking uh, about uh, life's frustrations. And I'm not going to unpack the whole psalm, but just this passage right here, what you can see is David writing this psalm, and we already know when he says later in the psalm, he says, I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. So we know that David wrote this late in life, right? When he was an old man. He was an old king. And he wrote this. And, he, and he, he's really writing from a track record. He's writing from a track record of, of the experience of life and how life can grind you down and how life can be frustrating, how life can be disappointing. And it just seems sometimes like uh, the, 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 the good guys finish last, right? It seems sometimes that uh, people who are doing it the right way, uh, it doesn't seem to work out for them all the time. And, and people who are doing it the wrong way or taking the shortcuts who are uh, passing on the shoulder and uh, doing all this stuff that they shouldn't be doing, they seem to be getting away with it. And, and he is speaking into that situation, that very human sense that why do I always seem to be getting the short end of the stick? Why do I seem to not succeed? And in the midst of that frustration, he's giving us a formula for success. I'm always very leery of formulas, so let's put that kind of in between quotation marks, right? Kind of a, kind of a recipe, uh, a, a tip for success. And <clears throat> excuse me, he unpacks this throughout the whole psalm, but I want to tell you, in these verses, really you get the gist of what he's talking about. The first thing he says is, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. If you're not trusting in God, you're not going to have any power to do what is good. And then, and the next thing he says is dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now let me bring something out here about what's going on in verse 3. So verses 1 through 2, that's the frustration that we experience. Verse 3 is trust in the Lord and do good and befriend faithfulness. Now I want to tell you something about, about the word faith. Right? Trust is faith. Trust in God means you have faith in him. And the word faithfulness. In Greek, and of course the, 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 the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but a, a couple centuries before Jesus it was translated into Greek, and these ideas were very much floating around. In Greek, the word for faith and the word for faithfulness is the same word. For us, they're a distinct word. In Greek, it's the exact same word. And it's only context that tells the difference between that. Right? So there's a deep link between having faith in God and being faithful to God. The one who is, the one who is faithful to God is the one who's demonstrating that they have faith. A lot of times... And so, this is because some teaching has got, got out there. Not all bad, but sometimes a little bit uh, too much emphasis on the wrong syllable, as they say. Uh, there's, there's, this, there's this overemphasis on the idea that faith is the power to believe that something is going to happen. 
Whereas the biblical idea of faith has to do deeply with relationship and trust of the Lord. You, you show me somebody, there can be people who, who say they believe, but they don't pray. They're not consistent in church. They're not consistent in giving. They're not consistent in their faithfulness. And I'm not talking about a situation where people's schedule has them working on Sundays or something like that. I'm talking about they just, they'd rather watch the Seahawks. They're just flaky, you know? Um, this, is, this is a situation where God says, your faith in me is demonstrated by your faithfulness. I, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I'll, I'll come back to that later. But those are deeply linked ideas. The key here is in verse 4. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's a stupid question to say, how many want the desires of your heart? Because by definition, they're what you want, right? The desires of your heart. Everybody has desires in your heart. Another, another translation of this is the requests of your heart. There's the request of your lips, and then there's the request of your heart. There's what's deep in your heart. Sometimes you can't even get it out of your mouth. Sometimes you don't even dare say it out of your mouth. But it's what's deep inside of you. In a way, it's what defines you as a person. Is that deep inner drive. Those longings. David elsewhere says, God, my sighings are not hidden from you. The things that I sigh for, the things that I long for, those things are open before you. And that's what David is saying here. Your longings, your deepest desires, they will be granted to you if you delight yourself in the Lord. If you take delight in the Lord. Another way to translate this is if you choose to enjoy the Lord above all other things. Now I want to tell you, this word delight, I've got a whole message to, to share with you, but this word delight, it's very important that we define it. That we understand what it is. We're not talking about a passing fancy here. We're not talking about, you know, liking huckleberry ice cream when it comes into season. Oh, I, that's just delightful stuff. We're not talking about that, unless huckleberry ice cream lies at the very core of your being and it's the central drive of what you're about. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about not something that is something, oh, that's a delightful thing. Oh, that's such a delightful breeze on the porch tonight. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the central hunger of what you want. <clears throat> Has anybody ever heard of the word agape? What is agape? It's love. Now, there's four different words for love in the Greek in the New Testament. And a lot of times, agape, and agape is rightly seen as sort of the king of them all, but agape has been defined as the God kind of love. How many have heard that? Agape is the God kind of love. Now, here's the problem with that. that was, I set a trap for you, and you fell right into it. Don't you like me? How many love me still? Pastor? Agape is the God kind of love when you express it toward God. But agape is common to every single human being. 
every human being, whether they know the Lord or not, has agape and expresses agape love. In John chapter 12, it says there were Pharisees who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't follow him because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Guess what word is used to say that they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God? Agape. They used the agape that was innate to their heart and their mind to, look, to set their affections, the central core driver of their life, to seek the praise and the admiration of mortal flesh rather than love for God. So you see, you can use the agape that you're born with and set it on the wrong thing. Now what David is saying here is set your agape on God. Make God the number one delight. Notice what John 12 was talking about. He's talking about religious people. So it's not automatic just because you're in the orbit of religion and you're about God and talking about God. Pharisees talked about God every day, all day long. But the word of God says God himself was not the delight of their heart. The praise of men was the delight of their heart. Are you following? So we're talking about delight here. I want to tell you as a personal testimony, I was raised in the church, you know, where we just came through Philippians chapter 3 in our Wednesday night study. By the way, Wednesday night study is going to start up on September 11th. That's another thing that's starting back up in September. But um, the Apostle Paul says, hey, I was, a, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I had all my ducks in a row. In a way, I kind of view my childhood that way. You know, I was uh, born six out of seven uh, children in a big Catholic family uh, before my parents married. This is literally the truth. My, my dad considered being a priest and my mom considered being a nun, but instead they got married and had seven kids. Uh, I was named after a Catholic priest. I had first Holy Communion in my house. That's one of the perks of having a Catholic priest as an uncle. I didn't have to go to church. I could do it. Had it right in the house. And I was an altar boy. Anybody here of an altar boy? I was an altar boy there. Helped in the Catholic Mass. And I did all that stuff. But I want to tell you, as a young adolescent, my delight was not in God. I was religious, but my delight was not in God. And some changes were going on in the Catholic Church, especially our part of the country where I was, western Michigan, Michigan and northern Indiana was, were being hit by the Catholic charismatic movement. There were all these uh, Catholic people who, were, who had delighted in God and they were being filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues, powerful things, miracles were breaking out, things were happening. And I can remember some of these people coming into the church and they had such joy on them and they would they would uh, play the guitar and they would rejoice and they would worship God. And I was like, what's with all the loudness? I mean, why are they so exuberant? And it, was, it wasn't just that they were, the volume was particularly especially loud. It's that their spirit was loud. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they were just glowing. 
And I was like, who do they think they are? They act like they have something that I don't. They did have something that I didn't. They did. They delighted in God. But you know the spirit that I was showing? The spirit of the Pharisees. Twelve years old and I was a Pharisee. Right? Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding that little donkey, all the little children shouting. It says the earth shook with the sound of it. Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees are like, grumble, grumble, grumble. Teacher, discipline your disciples. Quiet your disciples. Their delight wasn't in God. You delight in God, you're going to be like, hey, there's not enough hosannas that we can lift. Amen? Delight in God. Have joy in God. Enjoy God, the number one thing in your life. That's the number thing. Let me share another passage with you from another psalm that's very similar, and it's easy to remember because you just reverse the digits. Psalm 73. So you got Psalm 37. Now switch the digits. Psalm 73. I want to read Psalm 73, uh, not the whole thing, but starting in verse 21. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, this passage is very uh, similar, Psalm 73. As a matter of fact, I, it's always easy to remember these because you might call these two psalms the two frustration psalms, right? Psalm 37 is, is David speaking to a frustrated person. But Psalm 73 is the frustrated person themselves doing the talking. Is the person who's like, how come I'm doing everything right? And earlier in the Psalms it says, I've been punished every morning. Right? God's mercies aren't new every morning. I'm, taking, I'm getting busted in the chops, it seems like, every morning. How come God's always spanking me? How come I feels like I'm always being disciplined and chastised by the Lord and all these other people are doing the bad stuff? And I'm, 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 I've, he says, in vain I've kept my hands clean. In vain I've done all this stuff. Anybody ever feel that way? You're like, come on, what's going on here? And he, kept, he comes to a point where he makes this statement. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I love that verse. Because it puts its finger exactly on what happens to us when we finally reach a breaking point and we start talking to the Lord. I should say we start talking at the Lord. Anybody ever talk at the Lord? You're just talking at the Lord. And you know, every, with every word that comes out of your mouth, you're like, I'm going to regret this later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re regret it. I'm going to regret eating two Snickers bars in a row. I'm going to regret it. You know, I'm going to regret watching this stupid movie this late at night, and I'm going to regret running my mouth to Jesus. 
and blaming him for all my problems. That's what he's saying. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast. I was just stupid. I was just spiritually stupid. I won't ask for a show of hands on how many people feel like they've been spiritually stupid uh, before. But I think we know what we're talking about. Amen? There's this frustration. And in the midst of it, this is the answer. It's the same thing where, where, where David was in Psalm 37. It's the same thing. The antidote. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. There's times we feel like, God, I just can't hold on to your hand. That's okay. He's going to keep holding on to yours. He'll keep holding on to your hand. And he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards I get to go to heaven. <laughs> right? Afterward I get to go to heaven. And then he says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's delight. That's delight. Delight is not saying I have all these different delights. There is no other God besides him. He is our one and only. He is our God. We put all our delight, we put all our eggs in that basket. We don't reserve anything. We don't keep a plan B in reserve. He's the whole thing. Now let me tell you what delight does. When you delight in God, and I, I love the, the language here. He says, he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Incidentally, that statement, God is my portion. That's what Jeremiah says in that verse in Lamentations 3 that we sang earlier. It says, God is my portion, therefore I'll have hope. What, what happens when you make God your whole portion? When you make him your whole delight, when you allow your whole being to be invested in him, where you divest your hope and your interests and your passions and other things and you sink it all into God. Here's what happens. Perspective is restored to you. That's what Psalm 73 is about. That's why he says, when I was pricked in my heart, I was a brute beast before you. He's, what he's saying is, I lost all perspective. I lost all perspective. I lost sight of the truth. It seemed like the bad guys had it all, and, and, and I was always getting the short end of the stick, like, I, like God was ignoring my prayers. God was Delight in God restores your perspective. It opens your eyes. It helps you see clearly again to restore your delight in God. It, it's a reset button. To have your delight in God. You know, I was awake in the wee hours of the morning and, 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 and I was meditating on this and this image came to me. Anybody ever fly a kite when you're a kid? Anybody fly a kite? Ever try to fly a kite without a tail? I mean, the kite just, you can't even get it off the ground. It's just it's, it's going all over the place. I remember we had a big field at the end of our, uh, at the end of the street where I grew up, there was a big, there was a, there's a, a wooded area, and then on the other side of that wooded area, there was a big field, and we'd always go there to fly kites for whatever reason. We'd always get, uh, we'd get kites for Easter. My parents would give us kites as gifts for Easter, so we'd go up to that field, and, and uh, I can remember learning that lesson as a kid. I'd be so excited. You know, you have the string, and you tie it up, and you try to get it up there, and it's just doing loops and not, not graceful, artistic loops e either. It's just... It, it's going to crash into the ground and break. And my, you know, my older brothers and sisters, no, you got to, you got to tie a tail on it, you know, so they take a strip of, of uh, 
old sheet or something like that and, and weighed it down a little bit, and then it, it, would, it, would, it would work. That's what delight in God will do for your life. It stabilizes you. The winds are against you, but I don't want to be too cute here with the metaphor of a kite, but you, God wants you to soar, but the winds are against you. you got to have that delight as like that tail on the kite to, 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 to stabilize you. Why? Here's the thing. Galatians 5 says our heart, our inner man, is a battlefield of desires. Paul flat out says, he says, your flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit. The spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh, so you do not do what you want. That's his way of saying, look, somebody's going to lose the battle. There's going to be a loser inside of you, one way or the other. You're like, well, that's a no-win situation. Well, here's, here's the deal. In Romans 8, he says, if you do what the flesh wants, you'll die. If you do what the Spirit wants, you'll live. So you always want to cater to the desires of your spirit. That's delighting in the Lord. Your heart is a battlefield. And here's what happens. When you delight in the Lord, the delight in God is the great leveler. Delight in God just, it just comes along like a bulldozer and it just plows everything and makes it all level. Every good desire, every wholesome desire that you have, and there are wholesome natural desires you have. Huckleberry ice cream, that's good. Not too much of it, but that's good. Right? C.S. Lewis said one time, in one of his writings, he said, there was a man who avoided serious temptation because he had a, a great appetite for liver and onions. Right? He just, it was just a wholesome desire that he had. He just, he just liked it. It was just a good thing that, that God had. He wasn't gluttonous about it, but he just... He just, he, you know, there's, there's wholesome things that God wants you to desire. As you delight yourself in God, that doesn't mean you give up these other good, natural, wholesome delights. It means those things are strengthened, and they bring life, and they bring color to your life. But as you delight in God, things that are death to you, those things get put down. Those things get put down. I heard a guy, when I first came to the Lord, he said, you know what? Since coming to Jesus, I steal all I want, I lie all I want, I, I uh, run around all I want, I get drunk all I want. He said, the thing is, is I don't want to. I just don't want to do those things anymore. So doing them all I want means I'm not doing them at all. At all. I just, it's fundamentally changed my desire. But, but it comes from that delight. So I want to bring out some points here. I want to bring out eh, three basic points about delight and about this, uh, about this uh, great truth. Number one, number one, delight in God, by definition, is an against-the-flow decision. I'm going to say that again. Delighting in God, by definition, is an against-the-flow decision. I've already talked about Galatians 5. You've got this war that's going on inside of you. Your fleshly appetites are going to push back against this. But not only that, <coughs> excuse me, the world is going to push back. The grind of life 
To me, that's the DNA of both Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. It's the grind of life on somebody who's seeking to do the right thing, who's somebody who's, who's got a sense of right and wrong inside of them. They know which way is up. They know that the fear of God is the way to live, but the life is a grind. This world is a grind. The whole world system, top to bottom, is, is functioning in a way to try to frustrate you, to frustrate the people of God. The whole world system is set up to try to project, because the devil's a liar. He's trying to set it up to where, look, if you pursue money, if you pursue sex, if you pursue power, if you pursue the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. In the history of the church, they call it the world, the flesh, and the devil. That if you pursue those things, you're going to be satisfied. Everybody and their brother knows it doesn't work. Nobody gets in the news scandalous, like it's scandalous. It's just absolutely scandalous. I'm talking the secular news. I'm talking about the godless people. They're not coming out and saying, oh my goodness, those people at North Lake, they prayed 30 days in a row. Can you believe it? A special prosecutor's been appointed. Nobody talks that way. What are they talking about? They're talking about this Epstein character, right? What did he do? Sex, money, power. Everybody knows it kills. There's not a faith, and I'm not arguing for the equality of all the faiths, all the religions of the world. I'm not saying that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through him. But I will tell you this. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. And every religion in the world recognizes that money, sex, and power do not satisfy. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. But the flow continues. And we have got to be like salmon swimming upstream. Here's the thing. This is, the, this is kind of a, a deceptive thing about the word delight. Delight is an idea in our minds that we think happens to us. Like somebody says, here, have some huckleberry ice cream. And you're like, I've never, I've never tasted huckleberry ice cream. Oh, no, it's really good. And you taste it, you go, wow, that's delightful. So delight under those circumstances, is something that happens to you. Is everybody following me? It's something that you passively receive, like the breeze on the porch or, you know, well, I thought that movie was going to be a dog and it turned out to be really, you know, delightful. That's not what this delight is. This delight is a decision that you make. I'm going to say that again. Dis delight is a decision that you make. It's a choice that you make about what you're going to invest your heart's desire in. You choose to do it. You know, I think about Luke. Sorry, I'm going to pick on you, Luke. Luke's a personal trainer. And uh, he looks great, by the way. <laughs> and, um, and he trains people so that they can look great. But fitness is not something that just happens. Right? It's not just something that just happens. Well, some people just have it. No, you, it's a decision that you make. It's a choice. And it's a choice that you make in the light of contrary forces. 
In the same way, delighting in God is a choice that you make in the light of contrary forces. In the light of the grind of life, in the light that everything is screaming at you, hey, this isn't worth it, this isn't going to yield uh, results for you. Uh, this hasn't worked. I mean, you've been frustrated before. Hey, you're already serving the Lord and you're frustrated. What good is it for you to delight yourself more in God? It's a choice you have to make, right? That's the first thing that I want to bring, bring up. The second point I want to make is this, and this to me, I think, man, if I were only making one point, I'd make this point. When your heart truly is given to the delight of the Lord, where he is your joy. Jesus is your hunger. Jesus is your obedience. Jesus is, is your desire. Jesus is your drive. Jesus is the love affair of your heart. When you have that, I want to tell you, it transforms prayer and turns it into worship. And when your prayer your prayer habit, your prayer life, whether you're a mature person of prayer or whether you're finding your feet, and this has no, nothing to do with how long you've known the Lord, right? There's, there's people because of their drive and because of their choices, they become mature in, in prayer relatively quickly. And there's other people that just, you know, they've been practicing churchianity faithfully for 50 years and they've never really learned how to pray. There's nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian, but somebody who gives themselves over to prayer. When you, and I've talked a little bit about this when I was talking about praying in the Spirit. But when you pray, and there are people, there are Christians, they're, they're genuine, they are Christians, genuinely Christians. But their heart is divided. The book of James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's he saying? There are people that... They delight some in God, but they're also delighting in other things. And their interests are divided. Their heart is divided. They're double-minded. Kind of interesting, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, make your heart be pure to where all your, your delight rests in that. There are people that when they pray, their prayer is plaintive. Their prayer is is strident it is fierce it is fervent even but but the the whole gist of their prayer life has to do with the the angst that they feel the frustration that they feel so they're always lift, lifting frustrated prayers up to the lord but if you're delighting yourself in god first and last you're going to be worshiping worship is not just something that we do for half an hour in church to music. Worship is something you're supposed to be doing with your whole life. This is just a tune-up every week. This is just something where we can do it together. But worship is supposed to be your lifestyle. Worship is something, and when you're delighting yourself in God, your prayer life becomes about worship. You're just like, oh God, just, I just, I'm just happy to be with you. When you're delighting in God, you're happy to be with Him even talking about your problems. You're just glad to be with him because your delight is in him. And that puts you in a can't-lose situation. If you worship God, somebody whose delight is not in God, their prayer life, the success of their prayer life, depends on whether they're getting their prayers answered to their satisfaction. But if you're delighting in God, your prayer life becomes about worshiping him and you can't lose. 
you can't lose. Because you're just, you're just lifting up his name. You're just glorifying him. You're just worshiping him. And you're pressing into him. The third thing that I want to say and bring out about delighting yourself in God is delighting yourself in God is time reflected. It has to do with time. Now, what do I mean by that? As we delight ourselves in God, in this earth, heaven, we don't need to be uh, exhorted to delight ourselves in God. There's not going to be any frustrations there. That's all there's going to be there. These psalms are for people that are in this life, in this flesh, on this earth, facing contrary winds on this earth. And there's something about these psalms that very much have to do with time. Again, it has to do with perspective. Somebody who delights in God sees time differently. It affects how we see time. It affects how we spend our time. About a dozen times, read Psalm 37 in your own own time, on your own. But about a dozen times in that psalm, in one form or another, David refers to time. He says, dwell in the land. No, there's past time in the land. Wait. Wait patiently for the Lord. That's about time. You'll dwell in God's time. You'll dwell in the land forever. All these things are reflections of time. Psalm 73, verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. It's a reference to time. So somebody who delights themselves in the Lord... There's this kind of a timelessness that takes hold of them. And there's a grace that comes with it for you to outlast those frustrations. Because everybody has frustrations. Everybody deals with contrary winds. Everybody deals with difficulties. But when you're delighting yourself in the Lord, a grace comes to be greater than those things, to outlast those things. Because it pulls heaven into the present. There's this glory that comes. And I want to say this. Along with that, we have to recognize that delighting in God is not something that passes quickly. Delighting in God is a decision, but it's also a discipline. Delighting in God is something that we do in spite of the grind of the long run. Delighting in God is a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. It's something that we press in over time. Remember when I talked about the reset button? Delighting in God is a reset button. That's why we're talking about 30 days. Well, why isn't three days of delight? Well, because... uh, uh, disciplines are established in about 30 days. Now, I'm going to tell you, just honestly, and this is confessing in front of my wife, who's kind of always helping me get perspective. Um, One of the great things of being married is somebody else helps you see yourself. How many can say amen and don't want to? Anyway. So, um, I'm somebody, I, you know, my mind is very, very active, and I'm in different things, and I want a quick fix. I, I want to 
you know, I want, I want to do, like, okay, you know. And, um, you know, like how I eat. You know, it's like, man, I got to watch how I eat, you know. So I eat good for a day, and I'm like, am I? That was back to Luke again, Luke. You know, you got to do, you got to exercise over time, right? You got to do it over, it's got to be a habit day after day, week after week, month after month. And then you begin to be at the front end of starting to see some results. But it doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way. It's like those old ads, you know, people doing these crazy things. It's like, oh, it's okay, I ate Subway today. You know, like I ate one good meal and so, yeah. In the same way, delight, look, Look, folks, I I just want to say this with you. I believe in church. Congregating together is a place for encounters with God um, where our faith can, uh, we can build each other up, right? Where your faith builds my faith and my faith builds yours and there's there's connections. And, And that's one of the reasons I believe in the idea of an altar call. I believe in the idea of us gathering together joining together, us being surrounded. I've had tremendous encounters with the Lord where I was in the altar. It was, it was a step of faith. It was, a, it was a gesture toward God and toward the people of God for me to move from my place and show visibly that I was responding to the message by faith. And I was saying amen by my actions. I moved. I physically moved. I got to a place and I'm talking after I know the Lord. This isn't just coming to Jesus. This is, this is me responding to whatever, a call for prayer or whatever. And we pull together and we're praying together. I've had powerful, where I'm standing here like this and I'm surrounded by people. And I hear them murmuring. I hear them calling on Jesus. And their faith is building mine. And it just, I walk away blessed. How many know what I'm talking about? Amen? Glory to God. Those moments are great. But remember, those moments are like, Tune-ups, those moments are like, hey, that's the time when, you know, the mechanic gets in there and changes your spark plugs and dusts off the wires and, and you know, puts on a new distributor cap and all that stuff. And, but now you got to run. Now you got to, that isn't just, you don't do that and go, okay, I'm good for another week. No, that's so you get up tomorrow and you stand on your own. Hey, look, 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 look. look. I just want to say this. If you've prayed to receive Jesus, if you've called on Jesus by faith and Jesus is your Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm going to say it again. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're in. You're in. The point is for you to grow in faith and impact others. And for you to have an impact on others. Now, I'm not, you know, the devil, you know, I mean, sometimes he shoots the moon. Sometimes, you know, we hear, oh, I thought that person was solid and they fall away. But the the vast majority of you, I'm going to tell you right now, the vast majority, he knows full well. He's been around the block. He knows full well you're going to heaven. Right? Don't think like you're in Sunday school still and like this is still about whether you get to heaven. He knows you're going to heaven. His goal for you, I mean, again, he might, you know, he might roll boxcars. He might, but, and, you know, the devil's got wishful thinking too. But 
His main thing is to blunt your edge and to, and to, and to limit your effectiveness. That's what he wants to do. He, he knows he can't keep you out of heaven, but he can keep the person that you would have reached with the gospel out of heaven by keeping you distracted and keeping you, your interest divided and your heart divided and you interested in all this other stuff. That's, what, that's really what he wants to do. And as a church, that's what he wants to do. So my goal... According to Ephesians 4, my role as your pastor is to sharpen you and encourage you and get you where your delight is 100% in God. You're seeking God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You love him and you want him. And, and, and then God begins to do incredible things in your life. And you just begin to overflow and you begin to touch other people. How many want that? Glory be to God. Let's stand before the Lord right now. Let's just stand. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I want you, right where you are, just begin to call on the Lord. Just begin to call on Him. Hallelujah. Begin to call on Him. I don't think we need to come forward, but I, I, I just, I want our whole, this whole sanctuary to be like one great big altar. Right where we are, I want us to call on God. Can we do that, Jesus? We call on you. We call on you. Father, right now, we, we repent. We repent, Lord God, of having divided hearts and divided affections. And Father, we want to consecrate ourselves to you. Lord, this upcoming month, starting a week from today, September 1st, God, we posture ourselves and we position ourselves to be people of unbroken prayer. For 30 days, we're going to spend time with God every single day. Whether it's morning, noon, or night, whatever our schedule is, God, we're going to give ourselves to you, and we're going to delight ourselves in God. Father, right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would flow. God, that your Spirit would move. God, that you would touch your people. God, by your Holy Spirit, Father, you have a way God, you have a will. You know the fingerprints of each one of us, God. You know what's particular to us. You know those things that, that can be a hook, that, that, that grab our attention and keep us from you. God, we ask in Jesus' name that by your Holy Spirit that you tame those things in us. God, that you pour out your grace and your mercy. Father, we want you to be our delight. We want you to be our purpose. We want you to be our agape. We want to enjoy you. Hallelujah. With your hands raised, I just want to bless you right now in the name of the Lord. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and bring you peace. I pray that the kiss of the Holy Spirit would be upon your inner being. I pray that God would give you special grace this week to overcome and to bring to light in your own spirit those things that are pulling off your strength so that your heart would no longer be divided, would be focused on the Lord. Now, Father, bless them. Anoint each and every one with a spirit of prayer, with a spirit of commitment, with a spirit of desire for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
Amen and amen. God bless you all. Be friendly to one another. Encourage one another. And you're dismissed in the presence of God.